week, we, we uh, prayed for a group of middle school students who went up to the mountains for a retreat. And uh, we had actually prayed for them many times prior to that. And, and uh, five of those middle school students uh, professed faith in the Lord last, last weekend. Yeah, it's very cool. And, and just, just as cool, uh, ten of them kind of, uh, I don't know if you want to use the word rededicated or just indicated that they wanted to get really serious about their faith. So we really had a moving of the Spirit of God with our middle school students. And this week, uh, we have high school students up there. And the high school students are just a little bit more like adults, more hard-hearted, more set in their ways. But, uh, but God can overcome that in us. And so we have been praying for the, the uh, senior high students that are up there. And, and in fact, probably within the next hour, uh, finishing their sessions. But you know, we want to pray again for them as, as we also pray that God would speak to us. Let's pray that he would speak to them. Father, you are a, you are a good and a gracious God. And we confess, God, there are times when we don't really represent that well to the world, what kind of good God you are. Uh, you are a God who pursues us, forgives us, even delights in us, is, is infinitely patient with us, it seems. And we are just thankful to be able to gather in this room and sing your praises and offer up prayer. As you know, Father, gathered here this morning, there, there are many whose hearts are broken or many who are experiencing loss or difficulty, who need perhaps more than anything right now to know that you are with them, that you will not leave them or forsake them, and that you will get them through what struggles are in front of them. We thank you that you are that kind of God. Father, we uh, know that you love these young men and women that are up in the mountains uh, this weekend, and we would lift them up to you again and pray that you would move in and among them with the power of your word and the power of your spirit and that you would change and transform hearts. We pray that these men and women would hear from you and be moved by what you say to them. Pray for the speaker up there that you would just fill that person with, with wisdom and with power to proclaim the truth. And then, Father, here uh, in our gathering of worship, we ask you to, to be our teacher again. We ask that this time would not be wasted, that, God, you would use it to touch, to transform, to encourage and convict all the things, God, that the Spirit of God, your Spirit of God can do in us. Would you please do that this morning? as we continue in our worship. For we ask this in the name of our King and our servant, Jesus. Amen. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be greatest, would be the greatest. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and, and had him stand beside him. And then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors but you were not to be like that instead the greatest among you should be like the youngest 
the one who rules like the one who serves. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. And sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. The Apostle Paul once commanded the Galatians in his letter to the Galatian church, he said, serve one another in love. And we've been saying in this series now for some weeks, a a series about love languages, we've been saying that love serves. It's so interesting to me how easy it is for me to read about serving and study about serving and teach about serving and admire serving and champion serving and be able to say to myself, I am definitely pro-serving. But then an opportunity to serve arises and... I don't want to serve. <laughs> and I'm just guessing, but I, but I think this may have been the hardest love language for Jesus to teach. And the reason I say that is when I look at the life of Jesus, one of the things I observe is that in his life and in his ministry, right from the very beginning, right to the end, right even to that moment that he's hanging upon a cross, uh, this is the love language that Jesus was always advocating. So I want to look together at several of Jesus' teachings on this subject, and then we're going to talk briefly about some practical ways that you and I can serve this week. Does that sound like a plan? Okay. Does that sound like a plan you want to participate in? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're going to start by looking at what I think is probably one of the strangest and certainly least popular parables that Jesus ever taught. Uh, it's, it's exactly about this subject, this, this thing of serving. He says this in Luke 17. He says, suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper and get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? And after that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Is that a weird weird teaching, weird parable? Kind of scratch your head a little bit. What's... What's Jesus up to in there? You know, Jesus is supposed to be Mr. Servanthood. He's, he's Mr. Humility, but he tells this story to his disciples where the master doesn't even bother to say thank you to the servant who's been tending the, the sheep or plowing in the field and then comes in and does a meal. Actually, it's precisely because Jesus' disciples have this resistance to serving that Jesus tells the story the way he tells it. His teaching here is frankly uh, brilliant. His disciples all think of themselves as number one, as on top, as I'm the greatest, right? And so he begins his teaching by appealing to that kind of mindset in them. He tells the story in such a way that allows them to identify with the master in this story. He says that suppose one of you has a servant, and that's easy for them to do. Uh, 
So now they get to imagine themselves as being top dog. I'm in charge. I call the shots. And then in the context of how work would take place in that particular day, he describes dealing with someone who really, a servant who has kind of an entitled or unwilling spirit. They sort of expect to be served first. In our day, Jesus could have told the story in a lot of different ways. One way might have been this way. Uh, Which of you, if you had a spouse and you both get home at about the same time and you find that the kids have lots of homework that they're going to need help with and the dishes are dirty and the toilet's stopped up and the house is just a mess, if your spouse were to hang up their clothes and say, honey, look what I did. I hung up my clothes and I put my dirty socks in the hamper and I did all these things without being told. So if you wouldn't mind taking care of all the rest of the stuff and while you're at it, why don't you cook me a steak so we can celebrate what it is I've done? Which of you would put up with a spouse like that, Jesus might ask, and the answer would be, yeah, we wouldn't want to. Or let's say this, let's say you run an office, and one of your employees has come in and they say, you know, I'm at my desk, I'm on time, I successfully navigated my commute to get here on time, my shoes match, my computer's turned on, Uh, I deserve a raise, it's time for me to take A break. So if you wouldn't mind, boss, doing some work for me while I take a break and get paid for it, I'd really appreciate it. You know, which of you running an office and having an employee like that would put up with an employee like that? You see, Jesus, uh, in the context of his day, is painting a picture of a vastly underperforming and a very entitled employee. And he's asking the disciples, if you were in charge, Would you put up with that? And all of the disciples are saying, no way. That's crazy. I would never, ever put up with that. That servant would have to learn to do his job and do it with a better attitude. And then Jesus does something in the story that he's telling where he completely reverses the perspective on them. Did you notice that? Because he says, so you also... When you have done everything you were told to do, should say we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. In other words, Jesus is saying, disciples of mine, you are not the master. Disciples of mine, uh, God is the master. And you are the servant. And that little line, unworthy servants there, uh, where they... They say we are unworthy servants. Uh, That doesn't mean that they have self-esteem problems or something of that nature. That's just polite language in the ancient Middle East saying, you know, we will not regard ourselves as entitled or in some presumptuous way or in some way that's all puffed up as some way of, you know, deserving everything that we have. Jesus is saying, guys, I want you to be great servants. And a great servant doesn't go around saying, look at me, applaud me, reward me, you know. In fact, this parable uh, points to one of the most important signs of growth in servanthood or even growth or spiritual formation in general. When you, when you first obey God, it, 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 when the, the, maybe the first time you really serve someone in his name, it'll seem to you like you've done something absolutely heroic. You know, man, look at what I just did. Look, honey, I I just emptied the dishwasher. Get this on video and send it to my mom. She'll be so impressed. You know, when people asked Mother Teresa why she served, her answer was this. She said she did it for the joy of it. That's somebody who's pretty mature. In other words, it no longer looked to her like the stuff that she was doing was heroic. She was just doing it for the joy of it. 
Dallas Willard used to say this, that one of the signs of spiritual maturity uh, are the thoughts that no longer occur to you. This is a kind of an interesting insight. I always was taken off guard when the first time I read that. For, for instance, if somebody wrestles with alcohol, the first day of sobriety is a pretty heroic day. All day long, they're managing, they're battling, they're fighting the, the temptation to, uh, you know, to take a drink. They may think, that, uh, they may think all day how, long, how unusual it is that they have gone through the circumstances that day and remain sober. After 20 years of sobriety, however, a lot more maturity, They won't think about it nearly as much, maybe even not at all. They're free to think about other more interesting things. Now sobriety just looks like plain moral sanity for which they are grateful, you see. Well, spiritual maturity is a lot like that. Spiritually mature people love and therefore serve because love serves. So love, you see, looks for chances to serve without thinking it's something heroic that we're doing, right? And uh, again, where there is a serving problem, there will also always be a loving problem. And Jesus teaches this all the time. One of the most unforgettable times was when he was invited to dinner at the home of Simon the Pharisee's house. You can read about this in Luke chapter 7. You know, as a visiting rabbi in someone's home, Jesus would normally have been the guest of honor that day. And certain small acts of servanthood and hospitality uh, would have been just kind of taken for granted as Jesus entered Simon's home. Part of the role that servanthood always plays in every culture is welcoming people. Still today, same thing. In Jesus' day, the customary greeting would have been that of a kiss. If the guest of honor was of equal social standing to the master of the house, you would kiss this guest on the cheek. That would be the appropriate greeting. If a child were greeting their parent, or in this case maybe a student, greeting their, their rabbi, their teacher, then a kiss on the hand would have been appropriate. And that would have indicated like, that would be a gesture of real respect. But to neglect this kind of a greeting altogether would be the equivalent of just ignoring somebody coming into your home in our day. Not even acknowledging their presence, not even shaking their hand would be the custom that we would use in our culture. And then, too, the washing of feet was mandatory before reclining at the table for a meal because as you traveled, your feet got dirty. And if you had a guest that was of high status and you really wanted to honor that guest, you would wash their feet yourself. That would be a great way to honor them. If not that, you would have one of your servants wash their feet for them. And if not that, you would at the very, very least make a basin of water and a towel available so they could wash their own feet. But that would be a little bit offensive, a bit of a snub in Jesus' day. And now, too, you would also offer this guest a bit of olive oil to anoint their head and their, perhaps their face, maybe even their, their hands, because they lived in a place of desert dryness. And this was a, play, a, a way to, to refresh But what's interesting is in this story, Simon does not greet Jesus in any way. There's no greeting. There's no kiss. There is no washing of feet. There's no anointing of skin. And you have to understand, these are not subtle omissions, things, you know, easily overlooked or, oops, I forgot. This was a deliberate public slap in Jesus' face. 
And the tension in the room that afternoon would have been palpable. Everybody would have felt it. It's very interesting. Jesus says nothing. He just overlooks it. But we're told uh, that a woman is present. Banquets in those days, <coughs> excuse me, banquets in those days were rather public affairs. They would often happen in a, in a home of a wealthy individual in an interior courtyard with a gate to the street and anybody could just walk through that open gate if it was open and into the courtyard and they could listen they could watch they didn't really participate in the meal but they would listen and they would watch and that's apparently what this woman does (laughs) but suffice it to say she's rather unexpected and she's certainly unwelcome because she's a prostitute Uh, She's known as such by everyone in that village, everyone. But something was going on inside this woman. She's obviously heard Jesus teaching. Maybe it was even earlier that day. We don't know. Something about Jesus had moved this woman very, very deeply. And perhaps she had begun to wonder, how in the world have I come to this? You know... uh, Nobody grows up thinking, hey, prostitution, that's what I want to do. No young girl has that for a dream. This woman, once upon a time, had been somebody's little baby. Once upon a time, she had been the object of a mother's hopes and dreams. And then things turned out all wrong. We don't know why. Maybe her husband rejected her. And she got to the place where... She thought literally the only way she could survive, the only way she could provide for herself is by being a prostitute. But then she hears Jesus teach, and it hits her. There is a God who loves her, who longs for her as if she was his daughter. And it occurs to her, it's, it may not be too late. And she hears that Jesus is, is going to be at this dinner at Simon's house. Now, of course, understand, uh, she would not be invited to this dinner, not in a million years. And she knows this. She's wholly, fully aware of this. But somehow she gathers her courage because that's what it would take. And she comes into the courtyard where the dinner is happening. And I'm sure she was trembling with fear. But I'm guessing, too, she was overwhelmed by love or she wouldn't have done it. And she watches the scene as this all unfolds and with Jesus. And she's a bit overwhelmed by how Jesus is being mistreated by Simon. Jesus is being publicly ignored and publicly insulted, and she can't stand it. And so her love and her anger and and her mixture of devotion all well up to the surface, and she's wondering, what can I do to make this right? Now, of course, she can't be the one to give Jesus a kiss of greeting. She's not the host, for one thing, and that would be incredibly presumptuous for her. And you could imagine what the people around the table would interpret if that were to happen. But then she she gets this idea. Maybe I can kiss his feet. Now to wash somebody's feet was an act of servanthood. 
To kiss someone's feet in that culture was an act of utter abasement, complete humility. So imagine the drama here. Jesus is reclining at table. You understand they didn't sit at tables in chairs. You would lean on an elbow in towards the table where the food was, and your feet would be away from the table. And this woman walks in from wherever the entrance was and makes her way around to where Jesus is reclining. And she kneels down to kiss his feet. And she looks at Jesus. And instead of judgment and ridicule and embarrassment and condemnation, she sees love. And she has not seen that look in a man's eyes in a long, long time. Maybe maybe never. Maybe never. And here she sees it in the eyes of the best man she has ever known. This man loves her not as an object, but like a daughter, like a, like a friend, like a sister. And he loves her not in the shadows hidden away, but right there in the light. And tears start to flow. I imagine a few at first, but then more, right? And before she can do anything, tears are just pouring down her face. Tears of sadness for what she's done and what her life had become, but tears of gratitude because Jesus loves her and he forgives her. And tears of joy because Jesus had filled her with a new hope for her life and for her future. And Jesus' feet, unwashed by Simon, are now wet from this woman's tears. And she must have wondered, how am I going to dry his feet? I mean, there's no, there's no use asking Simon for a towel. That is not going to happen. He would never give her anything. And so on impulse, she loosens her hair and lets down her hair. Now understand, this is another shocking breach of etiquette in that culture. The first shocking breaches of etiquette, of course, were Simon's by what he didn't do for Jesus. Now here's another shocking breach of etiquette. A woman always wore her hair up in public. She never allowed it to hang loose in mixed company. It was actually uh, considered to be too provocative for men for a woman to do that. And if a married woman let her hair down in front of any man other than her husband, in that day and in that culture, it was grounds for divorce. Everybody knew this woman's profession. This is a woman who had let her hair down many, many times with many, many different men. But now she was doing it one final time, and this time she's getting it right. And so with her hair, she wipes Jesus' feet. We're told she also had an alabaster jar of perfume. Most likely that refers to a a, a small flask on a necklace. And because of her profession, this perfume was very important and usually very costly. But now she empties it. She's not going to need it anymore. And 
Understand, she's pouring out her life here at Jesus' feet. And of course, she cannot anoint his head. Jesus is a holy man. She is an unholy woman. That would have been extremely presumptuous. And so she pours it on his feet and she kisses his feet over and over and over. You see, love serves. (laughs) And Simon is watching this. And the understatement of the year, this banquet is not turning out at all the way he had planned. He means this banquet to be a public humiliation of Jesus. Simon, in fact, says to himself, well, clearly, obviously, Jesus is not it. In fact, he's not even, uh, not, not only is he not the Messiah, he's not even the, a prophet. Because if he were a prophet, he would know who this woman is and he wouldn't let her get to within 10 feet And so Jesus tells a story. Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two women owed money to a certain, two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Yes. And Simon replied, well, I I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. You see, the one who is forgiven the most loves the most. And what follows is one of the one of the greatest conversations that we have recorded in Scripture. I think try to, uh, if you will, try to picture the scene. Imagine the drama of what unfolds here. The text says that then he, Jesus, turned toward the woman, but he says something to Simon. So you have to picture this. Up until now, the conversation has been happening between uh, Simon and and Jesus, right? But now Jesus turns from Simon and he turns to the woman. And his eyes are locked on the woman. And you can bet her eyes are locked on Jesus. And I'm guessing that she's probably beaming under his gaze. And I'm betting that her heart was pounding within her. Maybe full of shyness or fear or, you know, what's he going to say? What's he going to do? But I'll bet to unspeakable love. And everybody else now at the meal, they're not looking at Jesus and Simon. Their attention, because Jesus' attention, is now focused on the woman. And what's so interesting to me is that this woman came into this meal wanting to serve Jesus. But what unfolds now is Jesus actually serving her. And Jesus asked Simon... Do you see this woman, he says, and Simon's over here. Do you see this woman? Because really, Simon didn't see her. Simon saw an example of immorality. Simon saw an object of contempt, disgust. He didn't see the woman that Jesus saw at all. And Jesus says to Simon, you gave me no water. And actually, Jesus is being quite courteous here. Uh, He's saying, you could have given me a basin of water and a towel so that I could wash my own feet. 
Simon. In truth, Simon should have washed Jesus' feet. Jesus says, She bathed my feet with her tears and has dried them with her hair. He says, You gave me no kiss. Remember, somebody who considers themselves to be equal, on equal status, would have at least extended the the courtesy, the graciousness of a, a kiss on the cheek. A disciple would have kissed Jesus' hand. Jesus says, she has not stopped kissing my feet. And it doesn't say this, we're not told this, so this may or may not have happened, but I almost at this point can picture Jesus just saying to the woman, thank you, thank you, you you can stop now. Simon, you didn't anoint my head with even common, ordinary olive oil. This woman didn't anoint my head but my feet. And she didn't use something cheap. She anointed my feet with the best that she had. And now all this time he's been looking at the woman, right? But he's been speaking to Simon. But now for the first time, Jesus speaks to the woman. And for a moment, it's like it's just the two of them. No one else. And he looks at her. And without question, she looks at him. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. And I'm sure her heart (laughs) skipped a beat. You know, she was going to be Jesus' champion, remember? Turns out Jesus is her champion. But it's not over yet because Jesus has one more act of service that he wants to render to this woman. You know, how you say... Uh, farewell to someone how you take leave of people was very very important in ancient cultures it still is today i mean if you're in someone's presence and they're about to leave we have various uh, ways to send someone off well we'll shake their hand we'll slap them on the back we'll say man it was good good spending time with you and then you part in, on good terms well jesus knows that simon the host is not going to do that for this woman Nobody's going to do that. And so Jesus does. He says, go in peace. Shalom. The shalom of God. Go in the peace of God. End of story. And you know, we have to understand something. When Jesus told the little story about the the two debtors, one owing much and the other one owing just, you know, a little bit. Jesus wasn't telling Simon, Simon, you're the righteous man. You have hardly sinned at all. You owe very little. You need only a little bit of grace. In fact, here's the thing. Jesus knew that there was a great, great sin defiling this banquet. But it's not the sin that Simon thinks it is. It's the sin of lips that will not kiss. And knees that will not bow. 
and eyes that will not weep and a heart that will not break and hands that will not serve. You see, the greatest command in all of Scripture is the command to love. And that's why we're doing this series that we're in about love languages. The greatest sin is to refuse the greatest command. Understand. Simon, don't you see, you have the biggest debt of all. If only Simon could see it. I mean, if only Simon could fall on the ground beside this sinful woman and feel pain over his sin the way she felt pain over hers. And be overwhelmed that Jesus could love him even in the midst of his dark lovelessness. If only Simon's tears would would flow and begin to flow with her tears, they could have together bathed the feet of Jesus. You see, this woman needed grace for a heart that was broken and devastated and wounded. Simon needed grace for a heart that was hard. And let me tell you something. A hard heart needs even more grace than a broken one. I just want to say, whether you're here this morning and you have a a broken heart, maybe you've been beaten down or you've been wounded somehow, or you're here with a hard heart, there's something inside you that is just stiff and cold and hard toward another person, and you feel difficulty extending grace uh, toward somebody. You harbor anger or bitterness or resentment toward them, and here's the thing. Jesus is still in the business, always has been in the business of healing hearts. And he can do that for you. He can do that for me. He can change something in our hearts to enable us to love even our enemies and forgive even our enemies. Now Jesus was teaching his disciples about this all through his ministry from beginning to end, understand. And I wonder if any of Jesus' disciples remembered this incident and this story, this time that they had dined at Simon's home, when they were with Jesus in the upper room on that very last night, the night before Jesus actually died on a cross. And, and one more time in this setting, the problem uh, seemed to exist around this subject of washing feet. You know, the disciples had gathered there, and the disciples are thinking, look, whose job is it anyway to wash feet? Didn't anybody arrange for a foot washer? Do I have to do everything around here? And in all the ancient world, there is no record whatsoever of a rabbi washing the feet of his disciples, except this rabbi. And we read in John 13 that Jesus got up from the meal and took off his outer clothing and put a towel around his waist and poured water in a basin and began to wash the feet of his disciples and to dry them with a towel. Whose job is this anyway? And Jesus says, I'll do it. It's my job. And then he says, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. 
And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. This is a complete aside. It's almost a commercial, so I apologize. But Palm Sunday, we're going to wash each other's feet. So don't come here with holes in your socks. I've got a question for you. Who are you going to serve this week? Who in your life has that as their primary love language and they're just waiting? Just waiting. You know, our marriage, Holly's primary love language is quality time, but I remember when our children were little. At one time we had um, four children under the age of five, and so (laughs) there were always diapers to change. Uh, There were always clothes to wash. Uh, there were always there was always a house that needed picking up and kids to put down for a nap and to get back up and then to feed and then to get ready for bed and then to put into bed and you know the routine. And during that time, acts of service became kind of a primary way for me to say to Holly, I love you, I appreciate you. And in fact, I began to notice a correlation kind of between Holly feeling amorous toward me and my jumping in to help with the house stuff and the kid things and things like that. So I started in earnest vacuuming more often and uh, getting the kids out of bed if need be just to give them a bath, uh, you know, and cleaning up the house and always making sure Holly was around to see that I was doing this and me the servant. But the point is, when our children were little, this was a, a key love language, I think, that spoke most loudly to Holly. Ironically, uh, this was also the love language around which we probably had the most conflict because uh, being a servant is very different than being a doormat. No one wants to feel like a doormat or taken for granted or being used. And if that's where you are, uh, then you don't really have a partnership going on in a marriage. And and that means that in order to get to a healthy place, you're going to have to have some pretty courageous conversations in order to get to the place where you can serve one another. One of the stereotypes that Jesus had to constantly be trying to bust in his day was the notion that leaders don't serve. In fact, the great ones have others serve them, right? But Jesus understood that the practice of servanthood was perhaps the most important thing that a a person in power or a position of power could do. Because when you get in a position of power of some kind, you become very vulnerable to pride. And serving people around you will help to prevent that from happening. Doing acts of service help to combat that kind of sin from growing in us. Now, obviously, communicating love through acts of service is something that we need to be doing where we go to school, where we work, where we live, where we go to church. This week, friends, let's be looking for opportunities around us to serve. This week, you could, you could pick up the house. 
You could fill up someone's gas tank. You could, you know, go with somebody to a doctor's appointment that they're, you know they're a little fearful about even going. You could run an errand for somebody at work. You could ask somebody the next desk over, is there, is there anything, is there something, some way that I could be helpful to you? And friends, there is also no place where this love language is more important than in the context of the church. Jesus said this, the greatest among you will be your servant. Who is the greatest person at our church? You know, every week I come here and I always have a conversation with Keith. Keith is the gentleman who wheels around here in a wheelchair. Keith has muscular dystrophy. And every week... uh, I see Keith wheeling around with a a smile on his face and an attitude of wanting to help or be helpful. But every week, too, it would be so easy for Keith to just curl up in a ball of frustration and anger and bitterness and hurt. (laughs) But instead, I see Keith trying to meet people, trying to welcome them, trying to introduce them to other folks in the church, trying to point them in the right direction. Keith's got a new thing he's been doing lately, and that's he will ask people how he can pray for them. And it's kind of shocking, especially to visitors who walk in, who's this guy, you know, asking me how he can pray for me. (laughs) Uh, I told Keith, I said, you know, Keith, you're not always the smoothest at all this stuff that you do. But wow, his heart is in the right place. Every week, Keith serves. That's greatness. You know, in this church, we want to be known for being extraordinary servants of the Lord. We want to extend extraordinary hospitality to people who who visit us. So when somebody shows up and they happen to ask you, you know, they've got kids in tow, where where do I take these kids? Uh, Don't just say, oh, it's over there. (laughs) Say, I'd be delighted to show you where to take your kids. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to Deer Creek Church. And I got to say, every time somebody here volunteers to serve our students, our middle school, our high school students, or to serve our children downstairs, teaching them, assisting in the classrooms, every time somebody volunteers to usher or to greet or to man the connect table or the uh, guest table out there, every time somebody steps up and says, I'll lead a life group, I'll try to connect other people in a group, Every time somebody comes up here to participate in worship ministry, to sing or to play an instrument or, or runs the sound or the, or the lights or video or what have you, I would just say, you know, these are some examples of the great ones in our midst because they're servants. And if you've ever never done anything like this, you know, you've been around for a while at Deer Creek Church and you're more of a a spectator than a participant, then I would just challenge you. Get in the game. And serve. 
You've got a card in your bulletin you can use for contact purposes if you want to find out more about opportunities to serve here. But this week I would just say, let's ask Jesus to help us serve others. Serve each other. Because friends, this is the way to greatness. There is no other way. Next week, we're going to look at the last love language together and um, pray with me. Father, this, uh, this whole subject of being a servant challenges me. It convicts me. A lot of times, Lord, I get paid to be a servant and I do it poorly. I just marvel at the love and the patience and the grace and the goodness of Jesus. I marvel, Lord, at the love and the patience and the grace and the goodness of so many people in this church who serve just for the joy of it. I thank you, God, that you can keep working in us and on us by your spirit and by your word to make us more like your son. And would you do that, please? Help us in this place, Father, to become extraordinary servants. Help us to become more like Jesus. For we ask this in his great name. Amen. Amen. Well, may the love of the Father enfold us and the wisdom of the Son enlighten us and the fire of the Spirit kindle us and may the blessing of the Lord God come down upon us and remain with us always. Amen. Amen. God bless.